Welcome back to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm Jeremy Jones, a pediatrics intern at CHOP and this episode's producer. Today we'll be discussing point-of-care ultrasound, or POCUS, a field that's been growing quickly with many new, exciting applications in pediatric emergency medicine. Our host today will be Dr. Bob Belfer, an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and professor of pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. We are joined by two national leaders in the field, including Dr. Rachel Rimpel, an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and associate professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. Within the CHOP Emergency Department, she is a champion for POCUS, serving as the associate director of emergency ultrasound and director of the emergency ultrasound fellowship. She also serves as the associate medical director for CHOP CD. Her research has explored indications for and the utility of point-of-care ultrasound in providing pediatric emergency care, as well as exploring means to assess the efficacy of educational interventions for ultrasound teaching. In her free time, Dr. Rempel enjoys constructing cake designs, including a replica of Citizens Bank Park, and is striving to improve her surfing skills. We are also joined by Dr. Adam Sivitz, an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of New Jersey at the Newark Beth Israel Medical Center and associate professor of emergency medicine at the Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. At Newark Beth Israel, he is the medical director of pediatric emergency medicine and co-director of the POCUS Fellowship. He also serves as the pediatric emergency medicine liaison for emergency care needs at the Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health System. He lectures both nationally and internationally and has published extensively on POCUS and pediatric emergency medicine. He is a past president of the P2 Network, an international pen POCUS education and research group. Outside of work, he is a lifelong Flyers fan who was born the year of the first Stanley Cup but fears he is tortured to live out adulthood without seeing another one. As for his own athletics, he is a retired club ultimate frisbee player. Thank you to both of our guests for joining us today. Thank you, Jeremy, and welcome to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Today, as Jeremy said, we have two amazing guests with us. Just a few housekeeping issues. Thank you all listeners for the feedback. We have thousands of listeners now to each of our podcast episodes. Continue the feedback, and there's two ways to give us feedback. Number one, the podcast has an email address, and that is the following, podcast at chop.edu. So if you want to join the podcast, you know one of your colleagues who has an expertise in an issue, or you have a topic that you want to hear, please send us that information to pempodcast at chop.edu. And the other piece of information, we now have a PEM e-newsletter, and you can find that e-newsletter and subscribe to that e-newsletter at the following website. Go to substack.com and search PEM podcast. That's substack, S-U-B-S-S-T-A-C-K.com and search PEM podcast. Okay, so guests, Rachel and Adam, welcome again to the podcast. Let's start, as many of our listeners know, we start with some icebreaker questions. Rachel, besides POCUS, what is your favorite disease to manage in the ED and why? Bob, as you can imagine, that's a tough one, but I'm going to go with the basic nursemaid's elbow. It's a fantastic, lay your hands on the child and ta-da, they were unable to move their arm. Parents sometimes think it's broken. 
The little brother is crying in the corner because he thinks he did it. It's a fantastic thing you can teach the medical student. And often I feel like it's sort of the one of the first things that can rope someone into a future career in PEM, that ability to quickly turn around someone who thought they were going to be there for hours. And in fact, you fix them in triage. So, And there is a POCUS finding you can take a look at to identify it if you would like. So, of course. All right. Uh, more on that in a little bit. Uh, and again, Rachel, I think with that diagnosis, there's a 100% chance that the parent says, thank you for your care. Uh, with that diagnosis. Not always the case with all the others, as it turns out. (laughs) No. Adam, how about you? What's your favorite disease to take care of in the ED? So, Bob, I I thought a lot about this question, and I have it two parts. My first is my favorite disease is acute intermittent porphyria, because that was my very first patient that I ever had coming into medical school, starting the clinicals. And I knew at that moment, I would never see that disease (laughs) entity ever again. But in the real world, um, and because this is a POCUS-themed episode, my favorite disease is intussusception. And the reason why is because we see kids who come in with vomiting and diarrhea all the time. And the trick in our job is to really define those critical cases out of the usual milieu that we normally see. And so it's very rewarding to have these kids who come in with seemingly a regular problem and using our POCUS skills to be able to find this diagnosis, make it right away, really right at the bedside. And then they have a nice reduction procedure, which is turns them back into that regular smiling cherubic child that they knew and loved <laughs> prior to coming to the ED. That's great. And Adam, we probably both remember back years ago before POCUS, when we'd have to call the staff radiologist and the staff surgeon in in the middle of the night if we were concerned about a case of interception. And in a few minutes, we're going to talk about POCUS in diagnosing intussusception and other conditions. All right, Rachel and Adam, I see our mission today as twofold. For those with less experience with POCUS, I think it's your job to get them excited about POCUS. And then for those using POCUS during their ER shifts, we want to open some more doors for them. And I hope with your expertise, we'll be able to do that. So a little bit of background, a little bit of history. We're familiar with ultrasound used to scan the wombs of pregnant women. Yet ultrasound started as a way of detecting German U-boats during the Second World War. The Allied forces needed a way to police the movement of enemy submarines. Beaming sound waves into the water, measuring the rate and direction of their echoes, proved to be the perfect method. After the war, scientists realized the technology could lead to a revolution in scanning the body as sound waves pass harmlessly through human tissue. It wasn't until the 1970s that ultrasound moved into mainstream medicine as an ideal method for producing high-resolution images of the body. Ultrasound, as we all know, is widely used to check the condition of the heart, blood vessels, and major organs as well as many of the pediatric conditions we're going to talk about on this episode of the CHOP PEM podcast. So Adam, let me start with you. POCUS, what training requirements are there today in pediatric residency, in PEM fellowships? Are there formal training requirements out there? So Bob, this is a very interesting question. Um, For years, those of us who were in POCUS never really had any guidelines or recommendations. And really, we were just borrowing what our adult colleagues in emergency medicine had been using for years and years. Of recent, we have a consortium of POCUS-interested PEM practitioners who came together a bunch of years ago to try to answer some of these very simple common questions of, A, you know, what are the things that we should be researching, but also how should we be educating and teaching both people coming into the fellowship but also people who have long since graduated 
And so to those ends, there have been a couple of recent papers that I've described. What are the common things that most of us agree upon that should be taught at the level of a PEM fellowship? And then also, how can people who've already been you know, well years out of fellowship gain the necessary skills? Great, Adam. Rachel, anything more you want to add, especially maybe with pediatric residents? And I know even medical students now are putting probes on in the first few years of medical school. Yeah, Bob, it, it, it's sort of an interesting moment because we have a merging of skill sets that don't always match up well. So we have the graduated medical student who then enters as a resident and might have a skill set that they developed during a very you know advanced POCUS curriculum in medical school. And when they arrive to residency, they might be working with attendings who don't actually have the working knowledge of POCUS that they even have as a result of their medical student training. And we've been encountering that for quite some time. We've had that, you know, with many emergency medicine residents who have rotated through pediatric emergency medicine departments and have wanted to pull out the ultrasound machine that was sitting in the corner and utilize it in the assessment of a patient and the attending physician working with them who had not had a practice-based training pathway didn't necessarily have the skill set. So it is a challenge to ensure that we don't stunt the growth and the learning of those trainees who are coming through with more advanced skill than the attendings they might be working with. So it's really sort of working to think creatively about providing the education and the oversight of those learners. We're just scratching the surface with that now in the CHOP residency and Uh, We have a machine that those CHOP residents have access to on the general pediatrics floor, and we are now building, you know, we need to build the larger sort of network of support around them so that they have the appropriate education leading to its use and then the oversight of its utilization on the floors. Um, And some of these things are just going to happen organically, and others we need to sort of really lay out the groundwork for. So it's an exciting time, but it still is a very much a work in progress and will be for probably many decades at a lot of institutions. That's correct. And it's a, sure for both of you, it's an exciting field to be in today. Before we get into specific disease states, I just want to talk about procedures. And the way I look at it, there are ultrasound assisted procedures, okay, with static views versus ultrasound guided. In other words, it's a dynamic performance of the ultrasound. Talk to us, Adam, about some of those procedures. I guess IV placement, spinal tap. Give us sort of the lay of the land today and what the future bodes with procedures and POCUS. So that's a a great question, Bob. When it comes to procedures, the thing that I usually talk about with the medical students and residents is that in this day and age, when I can Skype to a colleague in Israel at a moment's notice, any invasive procedure should be done with some sort of visualization to guide you. There's no reason to do anything blind. Yes, in a critical situation, if you have seconds to get something in, okay. But for the common things that we're doing in the pediatric emergency department every day, such as a basic IV, you know, we've all seen so many IV failures and maybe they weren't the best vein that was there. Maybe if you had the ability to look and could see how deep something was or how large the vessel was, or if there was a valve that was a little bit proximal that would have caused some problem in its cannulation, then you might have chosen another site. And so, you know, as in terms of whether it's guided or whether it's assisted, these things are almost interchangeable. And depending on the procedure, or even with the same procedure, depending on what you're seeing, you know, these are interchangeable. So for example, with peritonsillar abscesses, which we drain commonly in our peds emergency department, 
There are some mouths that it's very easy to get an intracavitary probe in and to be able to do the procedure, you know, watching it all in real time. Uh, there's other abscesses that are so large that you could, you know, throw a dart from across the room and hit it and drain it without a problem. But you have to know what it was before you did the procedure. So I think the most important thing going forward is for practitioners to realize that they have the ability to visualize all these things. And all the research points to greater success when you have that aid of visualization. And regardless of whether you're using it static images or doing it in real time, I think just the addition of the imaging is going to lead to procedural success. Great, Adam. Thank you, Rachel. We have an interdisciplinary audience. We just we don't have just physicians and medical students. We have nurses too. And Rachel, I know the IV placement in the majority of time are done by nurses at CHOP. So talk about the use of ultrasound by nurses for a very common procedure like IV placement. Bob, it is true that thanks to an unbelievable leadership of our nursing team and Aaron Chen, one of the other uh, ultrasound faculty, um, they really developed the program prior to my arrival at CHOP. And as a result, our nursing colleagues have developed tremendous expertise in POCUS-guided IV placement. And it is, um, the only downside to it is that it is no longer a skill that most of our physician learners develop because I truly cannot recall the last time that I was asked to assist with an IV because that is sort of the degree to which the expertise has has advanced. And it is uh, something that patients and parents are tremendously appreciative and understand. And as Adam's speaking to it, it's very true. Many parents appropriately will say, why would you even try without looking after they've had the experience of undergoing an ultrasound guided uh, attempt? Um, and, and it is something that you do have that pause of the moment of saying, why did we? when you have any failure and then we come in with the ultrasound, which clearly was just sitting in the hallway and then is utilized on that fourth attempt, you know? So I think, and knowing, you know, we're all working in large volume, high acuity environments. And if you, you you know, you can with many things, make the argument that you could do many, many abscesses blindly without ultrasound guidance, et cetera, that are completely safe. And that might be true. But if all of us are hoping to have long careers, seeing many patients, we are going to have the one in 300 that is something that's anomalous, unexpected, and should absolutely not be cut into with a scalpel. And I think it really, with the ultrasound sitting in the ED, it is the, the burden and the benefit is on us to utilize it with all procedures to enhance the safety, especially when you're dealing with pediatric patients. And, and Bob, maybe I can just add on that one thing that Rachel mentioned about that one in a whatever case that you didn't or shouldn't have incised. All of us in the field have cases of those, multiple cases of them, not the one in whatevers, but we've all seen you know, pseudoaneurysms or other disease entities that shouldn't have been messed with. And you know, unfortunately, we probably also have stories of where something did happen and retrospect it was done without the visualization. I think the point is uh, we have the ability now, look at it before you do it. Let's talk about spinal taps. Okay, recent AAP recommendations on febrile infants, we're going to be doing less and less spinal taps. We know the interns, residents now do much fewer spinal taps than we did when we trained. I've seen mixed literature regarding POCUS and LP. Whether it's done, like you said, dynamic or static, it's hard to have the probe and stick the needle in. I've seen them mark the back with a Sharpie and go in that interspace. Adam, tell us, where do we stand and is POCUS going to benefit our trainees in performing spinal taps, knowing that they perform so few during their training now? 
So, Bob, it's funny that you mentioned the, uh, the, the guideline change with the infant spinal taps. With those, I, I always find that when there's a failure, it's because everybody's going too low because they really don't want to hit the cord. And then really not trying to hit the cord, they're trying to tap the sacrum somehow. So in the, in the real little kids, I still trust the landmarks. And it's very easy to image an infant spine and be able to show you know all the anatomy there because the bone doesn't shadow. And so you get great pictures. Where actually I find it most helpful is actually on the adolescents and you know the larger kids that are coming in when you really can't press on anything and feel any landmarks and you're not really sure if the needle that you have in your hand is going to make it into the space. And so in those cases, it's good to be able to look with a different kind of probe, assess the depth, be able to see where your landmarks are since you can't feel them and know whether or not, you know, <laughs> this is really a patient that I think anesthesia probably needs to go after or, you know, I, I need a much bigger needle than the one in my hand. Great. All right, I want to shift from procedures to what I consider a game changer for ultrasound, okay? And the way the way I think about that is, how can ultrasound improve the way that I examine a patient at the bedside, know the disease state they have, and know if my interventions are working? And I think the hemodynamic focus in cases of undifferentiated shock, to me, is a game changer. Okay, I've read something about a rush protocol, which is a rapid ultrasound in the shock exam. Rachel, tell us a little bit about the patient who presents in shock, near shock, and how ultrasound, first of all, what are we ultrasounding in these patients? Okay, how easy is it to do it? And how is that going to change the way we, A, manage these patients based on the diagnosis that ultrasound may give us? Bob, it is an excellent, I think, patient population to highlight the impact of POCUS in the clinical environment. Uh, the undifferentiated shock is something that we don't encounter incredibly often in pediatrics. And with that, it's that much more challenging for us to think through what is the wide, wide array of potential causes. We're very accustomed, I think, to the onco patient coming in in shock. We're responsive to that. But unlike our adult colleagues, we actually, you know, undifferentiated shock isn't something that we actually see as often. And so I think keeping all of the variable causes on our radar is challenging because they're pretty rare. And what sort of that type of exam, the rush exam, is essentially an exam where you assess the variety of potential etiologies. And it's adult designed exam. So the idea would be that you would first examine typically for cardiac function. And you're taking a look to see what the squeeze looks like. Is it present? Is there a pericardial effusion? And then something that is slightly more of an adult pathology, but certainly depending upon the age of your ED and the patient population that you're seeing. And we know that it, it's you know a heterogeneous presentation that a massive PE could be another etiology. So you can also identify potentially right heart strain. And then moving from there, you're thinking about um, whether or not you have an etiology that is going to be identified by an assessment of the IVC. So not subtleties of IVC changes, but do you have an IVC that is completely collapsed and suggestive of a pure hypovolemic state or a vasoplegic state from a toxic ingestion or something of that nature? The flip side being if it looks like you have a patient who has 
severe hypotension and they have a very, very large IVC, that would be very surprising. And that in the context of a patient who is concerning cardiac function could be a cardiogenic etiology. And that is going to be that needle in a haystack of the previously healthy myocarditis that comes in. And identifying those patients is very challenging. And we know that you really have to have a really broad differential to catch them. And POCUS is going to help you to keep that differential broad. Typically, the adult uh, algorithm will include a AAA, which thankfully we don't have to think about. And then you're going to think about looking at the lungs as another assessment of your potential etiologies. You know, do you have a pneumothorax? Do you have a tension pneumothorax? Do you have uh, potentially in our patient population, could it be an unexpected CHF in a patient with an unknown cardiac anomaly? So they would have tremendous B-lines and uh, evidence of failure that way. And so it's going to really ensure that you step back and sort of think through that broad differential of that patient and give you a lot of information. And when we think about that information, we all know that classically that assessment of cardiac function is something that you could not get readily in the past. And so that's really a tremendous add. The other things could be hinted at at chest x-ray, certainly. Could you get a high lactate that would suggest something? Sure. But really getting a look at all of those pieces together really is going to point you in a much more specific direction than we would have had without POCA. So it's, it's a tremendous addition to that undifferentiated shock patient. Great. Adam, again, we have a breadth of listeners here, some very facile in ultrasound, some not so facile. Talk to us about the different exams that Rachel just mentioned and how easy it would be for a novice person to assess a squeeze, to look at the IVC versus someone, I guess, like yourself or Rachel, who could probably do this in their sleep. So how easy is it to really get that information? In other words, both of you are, of course, advocates for POCUS. We all should be doing this. But if someone was just going to learn a few of the basic things, tell us about some of the exams that Rachel talked about, cardiac function, IVC, lungs. So the good news about all the different things that go into the RUSH assessment, they're all really part of the E-FAST, which is the extended FAST exam, which anybody that goes into an ultrasound rotation or has taught anything in focus, that's literally going to be the first thing that we teach them. And the reason why is because it incorporates so many different things in one organized exam. So with this, you know, one set of skills that you are going to learn literally on the first day of your ultrasound rotation, you're going to learn how to look for free fluid around the heart or in the belly. And you know what? When you're looking at the heart, you're also going to get the overall gestalt of how things squeeze and what looks like it's squeezing normally and how it's not. And to be honest, when you have these kids who come in and there's undifferentiated shock, when you're looking at the heart failure kids, it's not subtle. I mean, these are grossly abnormal things that everybody in the room just kind of like stops and like, oh, well, I guess that's it. Similarly, when you're looking at the lungs, when you're seeing fluid in the lungs, it's really a very easy thing to see. These are not really subtle signs. So in terms of how long it takes somebody to acquire these skills, again, even though the FAST is going to be the first thing that it's taught, we know that there's a learning curve for everything that's really taught in ultrasound and you know, for how easy it's going to be for someone to pick it up. That's really going to be a very individualized kind of issue. In general, the numbers that come out of the ASEP guidelines are anywhere between 25 and 50 scans. And in there, you know, you have to have some cases of positives and normals in order to be able to differentiate these things. Great. So if all you see are normals, then, you know, maybe you're not going to pick up on the abnormal. But fortunately, 
where people get their training for ultrasound, you know, there's going to be a wide range of pathology and you're going to be able to see the pericardial effusions. You're going to be able to see the heart failure. You're going to be able to see the positive fasts. And again, this is literally, you know, there are studies that teach everybody of how to interpret the fast. I think all of us who are in the POCUS world and are, we have kids that we bring to use as models, you know, when they're seven and eight years old, by the end of the session, they're guiding people's hands to say, no, 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 move the probe here if you want to see this. So this is relatively easy to learn. Great, good. That's good news for the for the novices listening here. Uh, let's talk about even a more rare occurrence, and that is a patient who comes in in cardiorespiratory arrest. Okay, someone starts doing compressions, someone gets the airway, and there's always someone in the room who wheels the ultrasound machine over to the bedside. Rachel, is there a role for POCUS during an active arrest in a pediatric patient? It's a very complicated question, and just, just yes or no, Rachel. That's what it is. There, I'll keep it. I'll keep it. How about I just say yes, and then I, I'll let Adam explain why. Um, but uh, yes, I will say definitively there is. Um, I think we do benefit from many years of our adult colleagues sort of starting to scratch the surface on thinking about this question, and they have several large trials looking at this exact question and even looking at the practicality of how and when this gets logistically integrated Um, because that in and of itself as we all know running a code is not a straightforward easy thing and any addition needs to be a high value addition and again with the notion that these are rare events and that maintaining a broad differential of potential etiology and the potential inaccurate pulse assessment that we all know is a part of every potential arrest where a pulse check by the resident in the room we know has been documented as not a reliable assessment. So we can add in and of itself a cardiac assessment that will give you some added information there. Beyond that, you have multiple potential reversible etiologies that you could identify. These things need to be done carefully, thoughtfully, and very methodically so that they don't derail any of the recent improvement in our PALS algorithm and ensure that they're done appropriately and that they don't detract from the interventions that we know we should be following in terms of the routine care. So I think, yes, it has definitive value. We need, Adam and I have discussed this in the past, it's it's something we absolutely need to have better research about in pediatrics because that is something that we haven't started to do. And we cannot, as we know, apply any of the results of the adult data to our patient population. It would just be inappropriate to do so. Uh, Adam, Rachel, I think was sort of alluding to the fact that if we're going to do POCUS and CPR, it may take a time and there may be a prolonged pulse check duration pause. And again, I think in the adult literature, that's been one of the major deficits or detrimental reasons to use ultrasound and CPR. Any comments uh, specifically about that or any anything else regarding CPR and POCUS? Yeah, Bob, absolutely. I mean, everything that we should be doing is helping and not harming. At the end of the day, you know, all of our tools should be towards the benefits of, you know, the patient outcome. And if we're doing something that is delaying care or uh, in this specific case, causing a delayed uh, going back to compressions during CPR, which again has been described in the literature. I've, I've seen it in real time. And that's something that I think with simulations, you know, it, it needs to be better incorporated into, you know, our overall resuscitation schema. You know, we all, there's one person at the airway, there's one person who's calling out the meds, there's one person with a hand on a pulse. And there's got to be one person who's got their hand on a probe that stays on the patient's chest 
during the compressions and knows where the heart is so that when they stop, you've got six seconds, you have it on a video clip, you restart compressions, and then you go back to that clip and decide, oh, so what did we just see? And you've got a lot of time to look at it and make decisions. So, you know, yes, I feel like POCUS has a very important role in resuscitations. And again, this is something that we need to study and we need to look at uh, in the adult world. There's very few patients that are able to make it out of the hospital with good neurologic outcomes when they come in in arrest. We don't know what the data is for pediatrics. Great. Let's switch gears uh, from shock or hemodynamic POCUS assessment to something, Adam, that you are very well published in the literature. Let's t- let's move a little bit south and talk about the abdomen. A lot of different organs, a lot of different diseases. Let's start again with one of your favorite diseases, intussusception. And again, comment on number one, how easy is it to diagnose it? Again, for the novices and for the more uh, facile people, uh, go ahead. So tell us about intussusception. So I, I've always loved intussusception. And uh, you know I think it comes from one of the first times that I used it back in fellowship and I'm doing the ultrasound. And literally the, the parent that's behind me watching me do the scan you know, sees when this thing comes into the field of view and is like, whoa, what is that? And it's always like, wow, well, if that guy can figure out what it is, and really, I should be able to do this too. And, you know, not that it's that easy. You, of course, you need to learn how to do it. You need to the right probe positioning. You need to be able to differentiate interception from other mimics. But again, in this thing, it's, it's huge. It's a large structure. I mean, of all the acute abdominal things like pyloric stenosis and appendicitis, you know, they are relatively small as opposed to interception, which gets measured on two to four to five centimeters. And if it's a long interception, it fills up the right side of the belly, cross the transverse, and can go as far as it's going to go. So it is not a subtle finding. Okay. And again, Adam, we're looking for yes, no answers. So tell me maybe at your institution, but also nationally, if you get a no answer, do you send them for a formal ultrasound? And if you get a yes answer on your POCUS, do they also get a formal ultrasound? And that may be today, is the future going to change? And again, we'll talk intussusception, but we're going to talk about some of the other abdominal conditions too. But let's start with intussusception. What do you do at your institution? What is done nationally? And what's the future? Sure. So at our institution, and you know, I've been there for quite a few years and have a, a good relationship with our peds radiologists and our surgeons. So when I have a negative study and I feel confident about the negativity of it, I will send them home. And you know, my caveat with everybody that gets sent home is if things dramatically change, of course, come back in because that's what illness does. It evolves over time. And so you know, if there's a change, you know, we're open 24-7. When there's a positive, it's not like those patients go to the, the barium enema straight away. They'll still go to radiology. They'll still get their ultrasound. And for people who will say, well, then, you know, what's the point of doing this in the first place? You know, in in my mind, the beauty of ultrasound and its helpfulness, and, you know, now I'm going to wear my medical director hat, is that, you know, I have this patient in front of me. They have a differential. I'm doing an intervention that has just narrowed that differential down dramatically. So I don't have to waste time doing you know, any number of other sorts of things to get to my answer because I have it in the first, you know, five minutes. Great. And again, like you said, Adam, intussusception, very easy for the lear- beginning learner uh, to pick up, to either see yes or no. Let's talk about a more common abdominal condition. But again, I, like you alluded to, the structure is a little bit smaller. We know it's located in most cases in the right lower quadrant. Rachel, why don't you start and we'll have Adam chime in in a second. Appendicitis. Is there any role 
for POCUS and appendicitis in the pediatric ED? Well, Bob, as you've probably seen, Adam has um, published extensively on all of these abdominal complaints. And I think he very nicely has demonstrated that it is within the scope of practice for it to be identifiable pathology. And appendicitis is far more challenging than intussusception. It is uh, a different caliber of skill that's required. And we all know that even from our experience of sending our patients up to radiology, right? We know it's challenging. We know that there is a high false negative rate with ultrasound, and it's something we need to be aware of in assessing these patients. That being said, similar to uh, what Adam described in terms of the cognitive unloading and the ability to better assess a patient in a timely fashion and expedite their care, I find that it is tremendously helpful for me when I have heard about a patient who has right lower quadrant pain, who a trainee feels definitively needs ultrasound, potentially an ovarian ultrasound, which we all know requires bladder filling, which can be anywhere from an hour to seven hours at times, it seems, uh, to be able to go into the room with the probe. And uh, I will not go in for 30 minutes. I, it's a quick scan. It's a couple of minutes at most. And I will not only get a better assessment of that patient's pain, because the reality is an appendicitis scan is scanning an area that's in theory painful, and I will get a better assessment of their degree of discomfort in that region. And if I identify an appendicitis in a female, I can then say, guys, I don't need to fill this patient to see if they have an ovarian pathology. I've definitively identified that they have an appendicitis. Is a CHOP surgeon going to take them to the OR based on that scan? No. But I have then saved them additional care. I will at that point call the surgery team and say, we are sending for the comprehensive ultrasound, but just so you know, please put this patient on your radar. Feel free to come see them. They can look at those images themselves. Those images are in our electronic medical record. And the ability, again, to be able to have clarity on that patient's course is tremendous. And the other thing I think we have to keep in mind is we are also, we're thinking about this in the tertiary care center, but we are educating emergency medicine residents who are going to be practicing all over the country, as well as pediatric emergency physicians who might not have ultrasound available in-house 24 hours a day. And there are a variety of ways in which someone can utilize a scan, even if they don't have 100% sensitivity and specificity, but in a thoughtful way as they're assessing a patient. And appendicitis can be part of that. And I think the additional training and educational experience of doing POCUS, even though I know that in our care environment, they're still going to end up going up for a radiology scan, doesn't mean there isn't value in doing that. So I do find it tremendously helpful. Um, and I think uh, it's something that we'll continue to sort of see as the increased use of POCUS at the bedside, whether or not a POCUS emergency provider scan ends up sort of in an algorithm of risk stratification. And is it going to send someone to the OR? Definitively, maybe not, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have value. Great. Awesome. And like you alluded to, Adam has published a lot about appendicitis. And you mentioned in the community, well, ultrasound techs are not doing a lot of appendicitis exams. Adam, talk to us. Can an efficient POCUS physician equal the sensitivity and specificity of an ultrasound tech in the community or even in a tertiary care academic center? Uh, so, Bob, that's an interesting question, and I'm not exactly sure that we have the answer to that. Most studies are done at academic centers where you have peds radiologists or radiology fellows. And to my knowledge, there is no study looking at the accuracy of techs who are out in the community. 
So certainly if you're comparing the you know, POCUS trained physicians at this time, I think the research is, is clear that we have fairly good accuracy. And I think that you know, where there are deficiencies, my arguments usually among people within my field is really, it comes down to the, the protocol of how you do it and where you're searching. We know that there is a you know, decent percentage of kids that have retrocecal appendices. And you know, if you're using a very typical protocol, then you may not be interrogating the area that those appendices are going to be found. So the, the protocol that I use specifically goes after those kinds of cases. There are cases of appendicitis that nobody, no matter what their skill level, is ever going to find. When they dip down into the pelvis, you can't do graded compression anymore when there's nothing to compress against. So it doesn't matter how many years of ultrasound you have under your belt, those are, are gone. And there are cases of ruptured appendicitis where you also can't do compression you know that there's something going on, but you just aren't going to find the definitive answer on ultrasound, and you have to do a CAT scan. And that's fine. It's okay to do CAT scans on these kids if you need to, and if the surgeons wanted to know about you know, their surgical decision-making. Great. Let's talk about two other, I guess, a little bit more rare conditions. One emergent, malrotation with volvulus. So we have an infant with bilious vomiting using POCUS, and I guess we're looking at SMA and SMV inversion. Uh, Adam, you want to sort of take this? And again, is this something that sort of like intussusception? Could I put the probe on there and see where the uh, if the vessels are inverted or not? Or is this a much more learned skill? Um, so I think, I mean, everything is a learned skill at the end of the day. I, and I think the first thing that needs to be learned with this is when you really have a case of volvulus, you know, if you're able to see those structures right away, that's great. But a lot of times there's, it's a bowel obstruction. And so you have a very fluid distended first portion of the duodenum and potentially stomach. And you really are best served by throwing down an NG tube and really decompressing those structures, you know, A, for the benefit of the patient, but B, also to make that scan a little bit easier. It's fairly standard in my practice of teaching our fellows and our residents when they're learning how to do a pyloric scan, that when you're doing a scan and after you've found the pylorus, basically you just fan the probe a little bit further south. And I mean, we're talking about very small movements with the fingers and that's when you're going to find your SMA and SMV. In addition, I also point out that you have the duodenum that goes in between the SMA and the aorta, because that's another kind of important anatomic landmark in the radiology literature, that if you have that structure intact, then you do not have a malrotation and they can't have a volvulus. Um, but you know there are people who have a difficult time just finding the pylorus as part of a standard view. So you know going from that and then finding the vessels Again, it's teachable. Uh, we, we did publish um, a small case series of cases that have been found. It's a relatively rare ED presentation, but it's a catastrophic one. And again, if you can make that diagnosis right away, anything that gets that patient to the OR faster is, uh, is a, a benefit to the patient. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Both of you guys are going to yell at me. I have one more GI condition. Now, I'm thinking you have the probe the family's watching you look at the images as you look at the belly. And what is their chief complaint, Rachel? They haven't stooled in three or four days. Okay. So classically, we'll make the diagnosis of constipation. Some of our colleagues, including me, at times they want an x-ray to see the stool burden. Is ultrasound uh, a nice way to sort of say, yep, yeah, you have a lot of stool in there. Uh, you need some Miralax. So do you use that in, in those patients who have abdominal pain and that you're concerned about have constipation? Bob, it's an, again, something that comes up very, very often. It's definitely was not in my top three of favorite disease, I'll tell you that much. So it didn't just narrowly lose out to nurse me. It's 
there is uh, some literature around looking at a transrectal diameter and the potential of that being associated with constipation. So people have thought about POCUS in this evaluation. Um, I personally do not utilize POCUS in terms of my sort of diagnosis or lack of lack thereof. Um, I think uh, it's it's not something that I think is necessarily indicated. But, you know, as with everything, there is benefit sometimes to just hands on the patient. And I can understand that some people might feel the need for there to be some visualization of pathology and POCUS certainly offers that. Um, but in my own personal practice, it's not something that I utilize typically. Okay. A brief few minutes on, let's have a little lightning round. I'll give you the diagnoses. Adam, you give me the sort of the, the one-liner or two-liner, uh, yes, we use it, good skill to know, or uh, really just for uh, real experienced people, fractures. I, I use it, um, and I use it frequently. And the way I use it is really to be able to see right away whether this is something where I'm going to be calling orthopedics because I have to call them in from home. And so you know, there's a, a time delay for when they're going to be able to get done. Also, if it's going to require sedation or not, because now I've got to let the nurses know and we've got to figure out what the rest of the unit looks like and when we can get it done. So again, I do it for the cognitive unloading. And you're still getting plain x-rays, though, as a follow-up while the team is getting the sedation ready while the orthopod is on his way in, correct? Uh, yes, except for the negative cases where you know if there's no fracture that's there, then there are times I'm not going to go any further. Okay. Rachel, hip effusions. What is your sort of take on obtaining the ultrasound, the utility of it, and how that helps you at the bedside? Tremendously helpful, very straightforward exam, not painful, immediately identifies a location of pain in an exam that often is otherwise incredibly challenging, particularly in the limping toddler who is very fussy and even the most seasoned pediatric ER provider has a hard time identifying the location of their discomfort if they're particularly staph phobic. So I, uh, I utilize it quite a bit in my practice. Um, I think some of that, when we discuss it with other pediatric ultrasound providers across the country, it does seem that maybe there's something with Lyme that makes it sort of a high impact practice in our area of the country, because I've often suggested that should be at the top of our research agenda. And our friends who are in other areas of the country sort of say, why? When is the last time you've needed to do that? So I think we are, we're definitely looking at not just routine toxic conovitis, but probably the burden of Lyme in our population. Um, but I, I find it's uh, definitely, I would put it there with interception in terms of a low-hanging fruit, high impact. I would. Sorry, Adam, I would. A Adam, you uh, you showed a little bit of surprise there on our video <laughs> of our audio podcast, your thoughts about hip effusions. Oh, uh, no, I love hip effusions. I love seeing them ultrasound. And, you know, we recently had a case of just this, a child is limping, unsure whether it's the knee or the hip. And, you know, the hip's got a nine millimeter effusion. So there's your answer right there. I would not put it in front of interception, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We, we will come out with a rank list uh, again for the PEM e newsletter. Adam, testicular torsion. Do you use POCUS, not only the examination, but also the color, Doppler color aspect of POCUS? Uh, yes, this is getting used. Um, there was a nice paper done by the group up at SickKids that looked at it prospectively. Um, and this is a, a topic of interest to us in the P2 group where we have uh, some research proposals coming down the pipeline. At this point, you know, these patients are, it's a still a very high risk condition. And, you know, there's very few cases that I'm going to send home primarily after my study. Those would have to be, you know, the very, very low suspicion kind of cases. And again, I think when most people hear about, uh, you know, especially now in this COVID era, 
you know, they're doing a televisit and scrotal pain. Oh yeah, that's definitely going to go to the ED. And so we probably have more of like the low risk cases coming in than before, but there's still a lot of vagaries and, you know, you can have intermittent torsion and you need to, you know, your machine has to be pretty good at assessing the the, the color flow and there's variation within the color flow. Um, so, you know, for, for those reasons, I think this is still uh, an exam that we share with a radiologist freely. But again, for calling in the specialists and getting them to the OR right away to be able to put that probe on and say there is zip flow, open up that OR, again, you're doing the patient good. And again, that seems to be a common theme, Adam and Rachel, with many of the diseases we're talking about, that we're still going to work with our radiology partners, but again, knowing it at the bedside and being able to sort of act and move toward treatment earlier and earlier for many of these diseases. Rachel, we had one of our CHOP colleagues who did his fellowship with us, Dr. Todd Florin, on uh, on a prior podcast talking about pneumonia. We went back and forth about the role of chest x-ray, especially for outpatient pneumonia. Talk to us again, lightning round, POCUS and pneumonia. Bob, uh, I listened to Todd's podcast. Todd was my year of residency, so it was wonderful to hear um, all that he has to offer. And I felt that there was clarity that imaging continues to lead us astray in pneumonia. It's a nebulous diagnosis. It's still really challenging. Lung ultrasound, I think it definitely has a role, but we've yet to delineate exactly what that role is. We can see a ton. It's not entirely clear if what we're seeing actually needs treatment or is actually just atelectasis. I think it's very often very challenging. and um, But we definitely, I think, with further research will, I suspect, find that lung ultrasound has a role in further delineating the meaning of these equivocal chest x-rays. It is a slightly time-intensive exam sometimes if you have a patient who's really challenging to get the imaging on. So there are moments where I hear crying and I say, just send that kid for a film, thanks. And I will go and look at the area where maybe the film looks interesting and not do the entire exam. So it's still, you know, it's an algorithm. It fits in somewhere. And I think we're going to construct some really fantastic research protocols to actually identify what the role is. Chest x-ray is certainly not the answer. And I think lung ultrasound has a a real opportunity to be part of the picture that helps us to identify who actually needs treatment. But we are just scratching the surface of understanding the role at the moment, I think. And I think, Rachel, the point you made, getting an x-ray, seeing where the infiltrate, if present, is, and then going back with the ultrasound probe, I think that would be probably an excellent teaching point uh, for trainees in POCUS. All right, Adam and Rachel, we did not talk hardware. We did not talk about all the different ultrasound machines, first generation, second generation, third generation. But I want to talk just for a few minutes about that. A few weeks ago, at Temple University, the first-year medical students arrived at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine in North Philadelphia. And each of them, in addition to being given a stethoscope, they also received something else. I see, Adam, you're shaking your head here. They received an handheld, ultra-portable POCUS device. It was the Butterfly brand. Talk to us, Adam, about these handheld, ultra-portable devices. Is this the future? Obviously, at Temple Med, it is the future. All the medical students, at least the first-year medical students, now have them. Talk to us about where we are as far as the use of these ultra-portable devices in POCUS. So first, Bob, as a proud Temple alumni, uh, I feel a little chagrined that I never even got a stethoscope when I started medical school there. I just got my (laughs) acute intermittent porphyria patient. Well, I think, Adam, the tuition might be four times as high now (laughs) as when you went. So uh, 
But I think, you know, this is a, an ongoing trend in Temple is just one of many schools that have introduced a point of care ultrasound, but has also embraced the these ultra portable models of which, um, you know, the, the one that they received is just one of many different uh, companies that are in the sphere at this point. And, you know, I think to the point of the the med students getting it early on, I think it's really a recognition of, you know, medical training for years and years has relied on our hands as our diagnostic tool. And point of care ultrasound is something that is utilized across different fields, across different disease entities, is relatively straightforward to learn. And knowing this as early as possible really is the future of medicine. You know, when people are tapping out the liver margin, I mean, that is just kind of like Stone Age ultrasound where, <laughs> where you know, listening to the lung, these are all, it's ultrasound, it's just different ways of utilizing sound. And we're just, you know, advancing into the 21st century here. So I think this really is the the wave of the future and modern medicine's a first going to figure out how, what to do with these trainees who come out, which with much greater skills, you know, coming out of the medical school and into the training field. And, you know, how we're going to adapt the training and include this as part of just our regular practice of medicine. Great. I'm actually getting very excited just listening to you. And Rachel, I may actually complete the ultrasound modules as an attending at CHOP that I have to do. So thank you both. Let's talk a little bit about that, though. Let's talk about the role of artificial intelligence. In other words, I would like, again, as a novice, to put the probe on, okay, and then for that readout, whether it's a ultra portable device or an ultrasound machine to tell me good picture, the quality of that image is good. You can stop. And then as a secondary thing that I would like, I'd like some kind of interpretation of that image. So is there any role or what is the role right now of artificial intelligence, A, helping us with the quality of the images that the bedside physician or nurse is obtaining? And also where are we as far as interpreting using artificial intelligence to interpret those images. Rachel, why don't you take it and then we'll have Adam go after. Thanks, Bob. I think I'm excited to hear that you're going to do the ultrasound module. So I'm still a little bit caught on that because that's several (laughs) years in the making. So that makes this podcast a success in and of itself. But I think we will continue to learn what impact the ability of artificial intelligence, that ability to have an interpretation where, how far that gets us. I, I have definitely utilized and demoed the um, the many options and a lot of the different machines that attempt to, you know, direct you in terms of optimizing your image. And I think It's helpful for the novice learner to get some amount of guidance, but my experience has been that there still is a fair bit of basic skill that you need to have. And that's certainly, um, I think there's a good chance that that will change. And by no means have I um, explored all of the technology that is out there. I think our radiology colleagues have been looking into similar questions for some time. And I think there are many ways in which this can play out. But as with everything to date. We still need to take any information we get and then apply it to the patient and make sure that one and one equals two. And that's going to mean that you have to have a basic working knowledge of the imaging that you're acquiring and interpreting. So, you know, I think, um, but by no means have I utilized this personally in sort of day-to-day practice to sort of assess whether or not I feel like there's accuracy with, with the products that are on the market right now. Great. Adam, anything to add regarding artificial intelligence and POCUS? Uh, so, Bob, I'm kind of snickering a little bit because as we're doing this podcast, I'm kind of thinking of another podcast that I listen to uh, monthly, which is the Annals of EM podcast, 
where it's kind of a running joke that they make about uh, the machine learning articles that come up every so often, you know, how they're like fractionally better than humans or less so. There's a lot to develop in this field. It's, it's um, hard to imagine that there won't be something that comes out in some amount of time. The, the technology is not there at this time. Um, there's a lot of people uh, and a lot of companies that are very interested in basically acquiring the databases that we're getting, you know, both within the radiology sphere and with the POCUS world to develop that machine learning to make AI uh, a more accurate uh, entity. But uh, we're still years and years away. Great. Thank you for that. But we are providing the data, Bob. So uh, these handhelds are being utilized and all of those images are going up into the cloud. And, are, you know, there's it's sort of only a matter of time before all of that data can be utilized in a more functional way. So I think, you know, that your need to learn ultrasound may eclipse your timeline of completing those modules it's it remains to be seen so <laughs> all right like I did, I did promise and again this podcast is going to thousands of people so uh i didn't say when though but uh we'll see all right in closing actually one of our senior medical advisors in the podcast dr fred henredig wanted me to ask you this question and it's geared i guess to some of our global health practitioners our fellows and attendings who are interested in global health what is the role of pocus in i guess big topic, global health, but more so in disaster relief. What is your uh, understanding of that role? Fred alluded to back in Haiti when he volunteered years ago for one of the initial earthquakes that we read about 10 years ago, and I'm sure with the most recent one, the role of POCUS in disaster relief. Adam? So, Bob, as I've kind of mentioned kind of over and over with the, the different questions we've had here, the value of POCUS is still going to be the same here. You have critical patients who need to get somewhere else as fast as possible, and POCUS is going to give you extra information to get that patient to the right location, right? It's the right patient, the right place at the right time. So your ability to be able to make a diagnosis at the point of care within the disaster field, uh, that is an ultimate benefit to the patient. If they have the ability you know, to have the electricity to power the POCUS, if they have the ability to have the transport to get that patient you know, out of the area, but maybe it's also about resource utilization and enhanced triage of the, uh, the patients at the scene. So it, it Great, definitely Rachel. has a role. Great. Rachel, anything to add? Yes, Bob, that was um, actually my experience during the post-Haiti relief. Um, when I went down for a week and was in a hospital down there, that was sort of the moment where I decided I actually definitely wanted to do a POCUS fellowship. I was a PEM fellow at the time. And the Boston Children's Group sponsored a number of us to go down. And limited resources mean you need that much more accurate assessment. Um, and as it turns out, POCUS is the way you're going to get additional information so you can know how to triage people better. And it it's incredibly valuable in an environment where you can't send someone to the second floor for a CAT scan uh, to get a look at things. So. Um, you know, we haven't even touched on ocular ultrasound for increased ICP. All of these things are not perfect measures, but when you're in an altered environment with decreased resources, the slate, that 85% sensitivity and specificity sounds really good compared to your other alternative options. And POCUS actually, the impact factor just continues to climb. So I think in disaster medicine, and, and it, it is, I think, something that has been looked at quite a bit, but the global health environment and disaster medicine just really highlights the potential impact even more than our current tertiary care environments. Absolutely. 
Rachel, Adam, I want to thank both of you for all your expert comments regarding POCUS. I uh, want to tell our listeners in the e-newsletter that is going to accompany this issue, we will make sure we include ultrasound images of many of the diagnoses that both Rachel and Adam talked about. And now I want to conclude by, with some final thoughts. So usually I have our speakers give the final thoughts, which I will, but I want to give the first final thought, warm the gel. Would that be a good final thought, Rachel? Yeah, Bob, I think that's a great take-home message. It's actually something I do teach a fair bit, so it does really help. All of these, all of these abdominal pathologies that Adam has done a ton of research on are all more easily performed if the gel is warm. So, all right, let's yes. talk, let's talk a little bit more technical now and academic. Rachel, final thoughts: Where are we today with Pocus? What's the future of Pocus? Your thoughts? So the Temple Medical students each have a butterfly. I think Pocus is. It's not a question of if anymore. It's a question of just how often it's going to be utilized. And similarly, it's not a question of whether or not our attending level providers sort of are going to need to acquire the skill. There's going to have to be sort of a rapid acquisition of the ability to interpret and integrate POCUS into patient care because the medical students are coming and they're carrying their, their handheld devices with them. So, um, and I think it's great. I think, as we mentioned, it's all about the patients and improving patient care. And that is exactly what POCUS does. So it is putting the technology in the right place. And I think we're all going to have just more and more moments where people have, as I did, you know, in Haiti during the earthquake relief, that moment, that aha moment of, okay, this is no longer an optional thing. I need to really make this a key part of my clinical practice. Great, Rachel. Adam, you get the last words. So maybe first I'll add, in addition to warming the gel, leave the infant in the parent's lap too. Great. <laughs> Perfect. Um, but I mean, Rachel did an excellent job of, of summing up focus into the future. You know, it's it's a much uh, about getting the, the patient to the right place at the right time as fast as possible, better communication with your colleagues, better diagnostic skills at the bedside, uh, improved patient flow, improved patient safety when it comes to procedures. Pocus is just modern medicine, and we need to learn how to integrate it. You know, fortunately, there's uh, lots of multidisciplinary teams that utilize Pocus, and uh, I think it's just more people within the medical field recognize that. You know, radiologists work with emergency physicians. Emergency physicians work with surgeons. The surgeons work with the radiologists and with the anesthesiologists and with the internal medicine. You know, there there won't be as many barriers. Uh, to to learning and there'll be greater acceptance again, as Rachel mentioned, of the hordes of medical students who come armed with the portable ultrasound, utilizing it like we used to use our hands and our, and our stethoscope. Great. Those are awesome take-home messages. And again, like you both said, the medical students are coming. Uh, and in addition to their stethoscope, they have the ultrasound machine with them. So again, on behalf of the CHOP-PEM podcast team, I want to thank both of you, Rachel and Adam, for your expertise. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob.